scorching hot jobs numbers, some more analysis on the Fed, and a major milestone for Bitcoin ETFs. Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. I'm Nick Batia. Today, I want to walk through a bunch of charts from around the world of global macro and financial markets. And then I want to close with some analysis on the Bitcoin ETF launches and a major milestone on that front. All right, let's start with the jobs numbers from this morning, Friday, February 2nd. Now, I know you guys are reading the headlines and you saw that we had this blowout jobs number, great job creation, but I want to back off of the headline for a second and look at some of the internals. Now, there's no doubt that the headline number today was strong, but you know what we do here at the Bitcoin layer. We put everything in context. So let's start with the number that came out this morning it was a 353,000 job gain for the month of January and what we see here is a chart of this one month change in non-farm payrolls looking back about 15 years and what do you see here you see now I've cut off the chart in the top and the bottom for the pandemic because as you know millions of people were fired and then rehired into the pandemic. So that's why I've shortened the the y-axis for you guys on both sides, top and bottom. But then look a little bit into the trend. What we see here is that on a month-over-month basis, we have had job gains ever since the pandemic response. Now, those job gains have gone from a million jobs a month to three-quarters of a million to half a million to about a quarter of a million. And yes, last month is about 350,000 up from the two to 250,000 range, but still this is a single print and it doesn't tell us that all of a sudden the labor market is on a strong footing. So that's really the takeaway from this one single number. Just looking at one headline number and you guys know that it's not what we focus on, that monthly non-farm payroll job is not the main economic statistic that we are looking at on the aggregate and especially within the employment sector. We like to look at unemployment claims. That gives us a better feel on where the job market is. And now unemployment claims are at a relatively low level. Continuing claims are starting to creep up. We'll be covering more of that. Make sure to subscribe to our research letter at thebitcoinlayer.com slash subscribe. The Bitcoin Layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL for a special offer of up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free when you go sign up. Now, River is a Bitcoin-only exchange. That means there's no confusion when you go there. They allow you to deposit and withdraw via Lightning Network. They have a zero-fee recurring purchase order feature. And what we love the most about River is not only do they encourage you to get self-custody, but they're there to help educate you on self-custody and everything there is to know about Bitcoin. Go check them out today, river.com slash TBL. Let's look at the next chart giving us more context on this non-farm payrolls number. Okay, what I've provided for you guys here is the total number of payrolls, non-farm basis in the country. This is from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. And the monthly change that we get, that headline, 353,000 jobs, that is a seasonally adjusted number. There are a bunch of adjustments in there, including the birth-death adjustment, right? How many people are being born versus how many people are falling off of the labor force. All of these statistics are combined into this one headline number. But in the spirit of doing the full analysis, let's look at the total number of payroll. So not just the monthly change, another way to put it into context. And then let's strip out the seasonal adjustments And just look at the raw number. So the raw number is here in orange. And you can see that every year, there's a big drop off from December to January. 
that happens as people are laid off after the holiday season. And so, yes, there was another large uh, decline here going from December to January. But that is not out of the norm. It's actually exactly what has happened in every single year prior. The purple line here is the seasonally adjusted total non-farm payrolls. And you can see that this line has increased from about 130 million Americans to about 158 million Americans over the last four years. Now, look at the slope of the purple line. It is increasing, but not necessarily at a blistering pace and definitely at a much slower pace than where we were at the beginning of the pandemic response. So it's our job to give you guys the context for the headlines that you're reading in the financial media. Because you know the headlines are going to grab, try to grab your attention, but the full analysis doesn't, the full analysis isn't included in that one number of 353,000 jobs. What is the takeaway here? Yes, there is a strong jobs number for the month of January on a seasonally adjusted basis, but looking at the total number of people that are working currently, it does appear to be slowing in the pace, and that's really the big picture here. We might have volatility in terms of the number of people employed going forward up and down, but our job here is to try to look at where we are in the cycle and what we're seeing, especially with what we got, what we showed you guys earlier this week with the quits rate. With the quits rate declining, it shows you that people are not confident they will be able to go out into the labor force and find another job. So make sure to keep the non-farm payroll monthly change in context of other employment characteristics. Now, people ask me all the time, Nick, who do you read and what type of analysis are you doing when you're trying to put together your framework? Now, what we do at the Bitcoin layer is we are actually looking at the primary data. So we're looking at the primary source. We have the tools to give us all the economic data. We have the market information here with our time series and our charts. And what we're doing here is we are analyzing the data and giving you our opinion on what's happening. In that way, it's easier for us to ignore the hype around a great jobs number and put it in context with our framework. So what are we looking at? We are looking at rates. We are looking at a lot of economic indicators. We're looking at the yield curve. We're reading between the lines on the Fed statements. With all of these things, we can tell that we're late cycle, we're heading into interest rate cuts, and that the employment market is not as great as a 353,000 job gain for the month of January. Okay, let's go to the next story here. Jerome Powell on Sunday will be sitting down with 60 Minutes for an interview. Bloomberg is telling us that the topic of discussion will be the economy, interest rates, and of course, inflation. Now, what could Jerome Powell have to say on 60 Minutes? Why does he feel the need at this point to go and do some media rounds? Well, we think it's because of what happened in the press conference on Wednesday. The Fed is struggling to communicate on its victory on inflation. It's forecasting a victory by admitting that rate cuts will be appropriate, but it doesn't want to celebrate the victory just yet because it knows, the Fed knows, that inflation is still a problem for many Americans. Okay, so we're thinking about what the, what the Fed wants to communicate on 60 Minutes to the country this weekend. Now, I think it has something to do with this question. Now, when I was watching the press conference, 
This one question and answer really stood out to me, and I want to explain why. So the question was, Chairman Powell, what is your response to the letter that was sent to you by some members of Congress asking the Fed to lower interest rates to make housing more affordable? Now, we know that the Fed has raised rates a lot over the last couple of years, 500 basis points, and that increase in Fed funds rate has trickled through in part to higher borrowing costs from for home buyers in the mortgage market. And so Powell's response was very interesting here. And I think that there's a ton of signal in the way that he answered that question. He says, the job that Congress has given us is price stability and maximum employment. Price stability is absolutely essential for people's lives, including people at the lower end of the income spectrum who are living at the edges and at the margins. And for someone like that, high inflation in the necessities of life, it leads to trouble right away. Whereas in the middle class, people are able to absorb those higher costs. So it is our job, what society has asked us to do, is to get inflation down. And the tools that we use to do it are interest rates. So that's how we think about that. Now, why is this so interesting to me, the way that he answered this question? Jerome Powell is basically telling us that while there are many components to our lives that affect our well-being, he cannot concern himself with mortgage costs because what he has to concern himself with with is the pure inflation data, which some part of that is housing and owner's equivalent rent. But the majority of the inflation is made up by non-housing. And so Jerome Powell has to take his economic statistic opportunity set And he has to throw out a lot of the statistics in order to focus on driving down inflation. Because what he says, for the lower income American, high inflation is so punitive that he is unable to look past that. It means that if he has to make housing more expensive for people, And another part of what we're going to talk about is regional banking today. If he has to punish regional banks with interest rate hikes, it is worth it to him as long as he can drive down inflation for the lower income American. And so this is trade-off. This is a trade-off really at its finest when it comes to the Fed and how the Fed is thinking about things. The Fed is willing to take the trade-off of a regional banking failure, of higher mortgage costs, if it means that CPI will fall and that makes the necessities more affordable for lower-income Americans. And I find that response, it's not fascinating from my perspective, that would be the wrong word to describe it here. But it is very telling. It's telling to me because so many people think that the Fed is accounting for so many things at the same time and really trying to accomplish this soft landing. But really, it's not. It's trying to accomplish getting inflation down without having unemployment spike. And so until unemployment spikes... It really is still in the single mandate, and the single mandate of getting inflation down is definitely coming at the expense of others, including new home buyers, right? And as we can see here, commercial banks, which are 
having problems for more reasons than just the federal funds rate, which we will be talking about here very shortly. So the conclusion here about how Powell is thinking about things, he's ready to he's ready to punish certain sectors of this economy. He's ready and he's willing to do it. That's what he means by the tools that we use are interest rate. It means inflation, we haven't declared victory, so we are going to keep rates high. And in keeping rates high, we will hopefully continue to bring down inflation for lower income Americans. Now, we have made a point to remind people that the third mandate of the Federal Reserve is the S&P 500, meaning that if stocks crash, you know what is going to happen at the policy level. But stocks aren't crashing, so the Fed can pretend still that it only has one mandate at the moment. I guarantee you that when there is financial instability, it could come in the form of lower equity prices, but it could also just come in the form of banking stress, financial plumbing, tighter financial conditions. The Fed will be quick to provide relief, but right now it is uh, committed to using interest rates, meaning higher for longer, in order to declare victory on inflation. All right, back to the chart pack. This next chart comes to us courtesy of a friend of the show, TXMC. Make sure you guys go check him out on X and his analysis, as well as YouTube. Now, TXMC has given us this chart. It's a really, really good chart because it's only looking at one rate, but it's very illustrative to his main thesis right now and something that we strongly agree with. Now, TXMC is saying his main thesis right now is that when companies go to roll over their debt, there is a big problem in terms of cash flows versus that interest service, okay? With Fed funds at five and a third, everything is going well in the economy and the stock market because the borrowers in that that are impacting that portion of the economy at the margin are not facing rollover costs above 5%. Now, what he has here is this little box in blue, which is the current pricing of Fed cuts in 2024, which is aggressive. You guys are familiar with this. We cover it a lot. Over 1% in interest rate cuts are being priced in to June, sorry, to 2024. The Bitcoin layer, we've said that we believe the first cut should come by June. We're sticking with that. But there's a lot of room for the front end of the curve to come down in the second half of 2024, according to the pricing in the futures market. So the blue area is where it expects Fed funds to come down to in 2024. But the red area, he says, are the cuts the Fed must do for debts from before 2022 to be refinanced at break even or cheaper. So what he's saying is, yes, the blue area is where the market is pricing cuts, but actually we need the Fed funds rate to fall to the red area in order for any debt that was taken out before 2022 to be sustainable. It means that even if we come back into the blue area and a company goes to refinance refinance its debt at, let's say, Fed funds uh, at 4%, it took out that loan at Fed funds with, with Fed funds at 1%, let's just say, and so that 3% increase in Fed funds between its last funding round and its next funding round will still put it into bankruptcy. It will still put the project out of profitability. Now, from a corporate finance perspective, we always like to think about the project. Is the project going to generate a profit? And if it is, we engage in that project. Now, 
Any project or company that was started with interest rates at 1% or at 0% has a new decision to make at 5% or at 4% whether that project is still viable. And what TXMC is saying here and what we are agreeing with is that the Fed actually has to drastically slash interest rates all the way back down below 4%, even below 3%, just to make sure that the refis that are going to happen in 2024 and 2025 don't send a massive wave of companies and banks into bankruptcy and insolvency. Now, this is a scary prospect here, and it is why we named our research letter earlier this week, the Fed is going to botch this. We believe the Fed is going to botch this interest rate cutting cycle basically by being too late. It will only know that it is too late after the fact, after banking crises or after certain defaults. And so that is what we are going to be watching for for the rest of the year. Yes, we believe the Fed will be cutting by June, but will it be cutting 25 basis points in June? Is that enough based off of the chart that we are seeing here, which is that Fed funds needs to come down well below 4% so that companies in the near future are not all of a sudden faced with having to close their businesses because they just can't afford the refinancing costs above 4%. Now, speaking of problems in the banking sector, we saw the New York Community Bank struggle this week as it slashed its dividend and talked about the exposure it has to office buildings. A Japanese bank similarly this week had a large drawdown in its share prices because it admitted that it has large exposure to U.S. commercial real estate, specifically these office buildings. Now, we continue to see huge write-downs in the commercial real estate sector, specifically office buildings in large cities. Workers are not working in offices as much as they were before the pandemic. This means companies have looser work-from-home policies. It means that they are not as willing to renew future leases on office uh, space. And all of that is contributing to really bad internal economics for U.S. office commercial real estate. Now, I want to pause talking about commercial real estate for a second, and let's get back to the banks. What happened in March that caused a bailout for banks that ended up borrowing from the bond term funding program, basically this bailout facility of the Fed? This program was specifically initiated to help banks that had an asset base that was impaired due to duration mismanagement and rising interest rates. What does that mean? It means that banks that were attracting deposits took those deposits and instead of investing in short-term bills or other short-term interest rates, which would have continually reset higher in a hiking cycle, meaning no problem, meaning a matched asset liability structure, the liabilities being short-term deposits and the assets should have been short-term assets. But as we know, banks don't just lend money and then buy bills with them. The banks lend money for a long period of time. And in that way, a bank has an asset liability mismatch. But some of these banks took that one step further and bought 30-year treasuries. That's not a loan that can be managed with a floating rate. It's outright duration exposure. Remember, duration means sensitivity to the change in interest rates. And so if you own a 30-year bond, you have a ton of duration, means you have a lot of price sensitivity to an increase in interest rates. So as interest rates increased, In 2022, we saw a large 
impairment of those treasury bonds on the balance sheet of banks, terrible management of asset liability matching. And because of that terrible management, the Fed needed to put in this bond term funding program, which allowed banks to give the Fed their treasuries that they shouldn't have owned because rates went up and they lost a lot of money on them. It allowed those banks to give the Fed those treasuries and take out a loan against the full amount of money, not just the impaired amount. So the problem last year was, in theory, duration, mismanagement, and asset liability mismanagement of matching. But what's happening this year? It is a different story, and this is a big deal. The stories this year for New York Community Bank Corp and for this Japanese bank are credit issues. Their borrowers, meaning the asset side of these banks, are loans to companies and other commercial real estate exposure in the United States with office buildings. Now those assets are starting to become impaired and the market is starting to see that. So there's no bailout facility that the Fed can just lend money against impaired treasury collateral here. These are bad assets. And if these bad assets continue to underperform, you are going to see write downs on the banking side of things that have nothing to do with the Fed's hiking cycle from last year. Nothing to do with it. And so this is a problem, guys. This this is what TXMC is showing you on this chart, and it's what we are warning you about, that the Fed is going to botch, botch this. It's too late already, actually. It's too late because they've communicated to us, there's no cut in March. We're not going to slash rates right now. We're not victorious yet on inflation. It means that rates are not going to come down fast enough. What scenario is there where the Fed cuts rates by 2% in the next three months? There's almost no scenario for that. And because there's no scenario for that, it gives the market and banks time to sniff out where the exact pain might be with regard to refinancing costs. So the Fed, it when we say the Fed is going to botch this, it means they will cut rates, but it'll be too late. So they will slash rates to account for what is happening in banking. But because they don't see it enough yet, and because remember what Powell said, he's only thinking about the low-income earner that is being punished through inflation right now. And if that is his single mindset, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong, right? If Powell wants to focus on the lowest income earners in this country and say, my policy is directed towards making sure that their prices stop going up as fast as it was, then that is his prerogative. That is what he's going to do. But what is going to happen because that is his prerogative? This is going to happen. Trouble in banks. So watch the commercial real estate sector with us throughout the year. Watch these office buildings being written down. Then watch smaller banks and the trouble that they are getting into. Then you watch the Fed's reaction. Then you see how long Powell is focused on getting inflation down and not focused on potential issues in the financial sector, right? We reminded you guys that financial conditions are quite easy right now. Another reason why the Fed is not ready to slash rates. They're just not. And with the jobs number where it is, with the economy growing at over 3%, we understand why the Fed is looking at the spot data and saying, we don't need to do anything yet. It's our job to look forward. We're reminded of a famous uh, trader quote from Stanley Druckenmiller, a famous investor, one of the most successful investors of all time. 
Druckenmiller says you never invest for what's happening now. You invest based on what you think will happen in the next 18 months. So what's happening right now? 3% GDP and a low unemployment rate. What's happening in the next 18 months? The problems that we are trying to identify here. Switching gears a little bit, let's talk about money markets and treasury yields. A little bit more onto the markets portion of the show. And remember, we're going to close with Bitcoin ETFs. So right here on the screen, I have the reverse repo facility of the Fed. You can see that it's now fallen to about half a trillion dollars. The decline is consistent. It continues to happen. And it is going to put the Fed in an interesting spot spot around March. Now, remember what happened this week. The Fed said no change to QT. The reason that it said no change to QT potentially is that it sees this reverse repo facility not falling as fast as might be the slope right now on the curve. They think that potentially because of less treasury bill issuance in the second quarter, less treasury bill issuance should make treasury bills less attractive relative to reverse repo. And in that way, the Fed thinks that money might not flee the reverse repo facility as quickly as it has been doing. We think that this way to approach reverse repo is insane. And it is part of the reason why we think the Fed is not thinking enough about what will happen in the financial sector in plumbing because it is so focused on this getting inflation back down to 2%. Now, we think it's insane because what happened in September 2019, you had a repo crisis, you had the Fed need to put new facilities in place, and then it had to increase the amount of reserves in the system by a drastic amount in the following months. And so the fact that the Fed is not really talking about how to maneuver around the end of RRP is objectively not smart to us. It it fails to account for what has been happening over the last 10 to 15 years in the money markets. The money markets have become so dependent on the marginal liquidity from the Fed that when it is not there, problems can happen so quickly. So really a dramatic next several months in the money markets that we are looking for. Now compare the fall in reverse repo to the increase in money markets under management, topping $6 trillion for the first time this week with another 30 plus billion inflow on the weekly basis. Now with money market sh- funds showing $6 trillion, shouldn't some of that be propping up RRP? No, it's not. And why is it not? Where is the money going? This is a big deal, guys. This is, this is the money markets inside baseball that we pride ourselves on at the Bitcoin layer. This is what you're not going to find at other Bitcoin shows, and you're not going to find the type of Bitcoin analysis from money market analysts that we provide. So we, we want you guys to see that we're bringing in these different schools of thought here. What is happening in the money market that's causing RRP to fall? If you look at this next chart here, look at the black line, which is the number of treasury bills. Okay, The orange line now here is money markets under management at $6 trillion. The black line is bills, and the purple line is SOFR usage. It's treasury repo. So reverse repo is declining, as you can see here in green. Reverse repo is declining sharply, but the allocation to repo, treasury repo, and this treasury repo, think of it as funding the primary dealers. Primary dealers are showing up to the auctions. They're taking on all these treasuries. Do they have the cash for it? No. How do they get the cash? They finance the positions through the repo market. That ends up in SOFR volume. Okay? SOFR volume shows us that the amount of money 
going into money markets in orange is finding its way into bills and other forms of treasury repo. So it's being soaked up all by issuance. This goes back to fiscal dominance uh, concepts that we've talked about throughout the last, last several months. The treasury and the amount of treasury supply is having a large effect on financial plumbing and the rest of the interest rate complex. And part of fiscal dominance, part of that theory is that we won't be able to get interest rates down because GDP will stay stubbornly high. Interest rates have come down. They're still inverted to the front end of the curve. We think that's material and a sign that interest rates are still tied to inflation expectations, which are low. But that doesn't mean that Treasury isn't having influence. We can see the influence here. Okay? Money markets are finding their way into funding the government. Funding the government through T-bills and funding the government through the SOFR market, which is funding the purchase of longer-term treasuries done by primary dealers, which helps fund the government. When they show up to auction, that's giving the government money to spend on expenses. So what is going on right now? All the money market money is coming into funding the government. It's not going into reverse repo. It's not cash on the sidelines ready to buy the stock market. It's actually a fear metric. Look at, let's go back to the money market fund chart for one second here. Look at what happened in 2006, 7, and 8 to the black line. Money market assets under management went from $2 trillion to $4 trillion. They doubled. Why? Fear. Then after the stock market crashed, that money came out and bought stocks. So this money is not sidelines ready to buy the stock market today. It's actually ready to buy the stock market after a crash. And until then, it's keeping it short keeping it in bills, keeping it in repo, meaning no risk, no risk. That's what this number is telling us. So it's actually a type of fear gauge. We are, you can rely on us to continue watching every single one of these market internals, right? We're not here to tell you great jobs number. Everything is great. We're here to look at everything. Okay. And so that's what we are going to continue to do. Now, I want to shift gears once again. Let's look a a little bit at price action before we go and finish with Bitcoin ETFs. Now, I have only weekly candles here, and I have three charts. I have twos, tens, and twos, tens, so the yield curve. So we're going to look at the front end of the curve, the belly of the curve, and we're going to look at the shape of the curve. And you guys know that I don't like to draw a ton of lines on here. And the lines that I draw, I try to keep for as long as I can on the chart so that you also can follow along at home. And that we also, for my own analysis and my own charting, it doesn't serve a lot of purpose to draw, delete, draw, delete a bunch of lines all the time. I draw what I see and I leave it on there until it's violated or it's proven wrong or it's not helpful anymore. So let's start with twos. I have this rounding top. I've kept that there since October of last year. Okay. October to December, I started to see this rounding top. And this is where you see me draw at the peak of that curve around October. So I expect two-year yields to trend toward 4% this year. I still expect that. So that's that rounding top here. These are weekly candles. Now, the second line I have on here is the blue line. It's a descending trend line. Yields have been trending down since October. We know this, okay? So as yields trend down, are they going to just go straight down or are they going to have nice periods of pops and then retest and then continue their decline? So yeah, rates went up quite a bit today off of a great jobs number, but to where? How far? What we see here is that now there might finally be some upward momentum in rates, but it's still shy of this descending trend line that I've drawn weeks ago. 
So yeah, twos can tag four and a half here easily. It wouldn't be a surprise. And if you think about where policy rates are, right, always go back to the policy rate and the math of the term structure. With policy rates at five and a third, a two-year yield at 4% means that the policy rate will have to go into the threes by 2025 to make that break-even math work out. So what does that mean? Let's say it in a more simple way. A two sorry, a 4% yield on two-year yields implies a policy rate of 3% next year because the policy rate is still going to be well above 5 and 4% for a large part of this year. That's really aggressive. So if the Fed is now maybe not going to cut until June, how do you get to 3% policy rates? You don't. You maybe get to 4% policy rates. And so a 4.5% two-year treasury yield makes much more sense in that context. So, But we know to not get fooled by what the Fed does and instead look at the market. So do we take any signal from twos being up by 20 basis points today? No. We'll get the signal for what twos do at 4.5%. Do the buyers come back in and say, yes, we want to own twos at 4.5% because we still think policy rates are going to 3%, making 4.5% today still cheap and attractive to us. So that's how treasury investors are thinking about this yield today. And it was overdone. We've talked about that also, that... The buying going into the end of December, a lot of that is seasonal. A lot of that was overdone. So the selling is to be expected here in January and February, but where does it settle? Where does the buying come back in? Let's look at the 10-year yield and see where the buying comes back in. So I've left the trend lines here. The interesting thing here about the descending trend line here, if you look at it on the daily, which I showed you earlier, in the week in a previous video, the testing of that trend line hasn't been uh, tagged yet. But if you switch to the weekly, it falls at a much sharper pace. So that's a little nuance there. But I've flagged this four and a third level uh, for, for several months here as a logical place that yields would come back and tag. And what a, a yield level that should generate some buying interest. So Let's watch how tens react if they get to four and a third, but think about it again versus the policy rate. With policy rates at five and a third and tens at four and a third, investors are still looking at that as cheap, right? The 10-year the yield is just at 4% today. It's up a lot, but it's still only at 4%. Still inverted to twos, still inverted heavily to the policy rate. So there is a premium on owning duration, and that premium is basically saying we are okay with locking up our money for two years, five years, or 10 years at 4%, 4 and a third percent because we feel like rates are coming to 3% and lower over the course of that time horizon, okay? These are not expectations of great growth and inflation, right? Think about our first headline of the day with non-farm payrolls at 353,000. That does not connect with what we are seeing in yields. Yields are pricing in rate cuts and slowing growth. They are not pricing in a hot job market and a no landing scenario. Last chart I have on treasury yields for you guys is the twos tens yield curve. So you can see the flattening and the inversion that happened in 2021 and 2022. In 2023, a basing of the yield curve and finally a steepening that has started in earnest several months ago. So we look for the steepening to continue, but what's happening right now? The last couple of days, a big flattening move in the yield curve as the Fed has walked back its cuts. It's pushed them back from March to May, from May to June even, and in that way, investors are putting back on the policy error trade. Policy error is we don't think that you're cutting fast enough, so we think growth will slow. And that's why the curve gets inverted. 
a premium on 10-year over two-year. We'd rather own 10-year than two-year because your policy rate is not low enough. It's going to send growth and inflation expectations lower. And that is a flattening bias. The steepening bias is the cuts are coming now that will that will lower the front end of the yield curve and it should support future growth expectations as now the policy rate is no longer as restrictive. That is the steepening bias. So when the curve steepens, it's the market saying, okay, cuts are probably coming now. But when it reflattens, it's saying, where are the cuts? You promised them, they're not coming, so we're going to reflatten. So the, the, the curve is going to be something dramatic that we continue to watch. Right now, it is close to this ascending trend line, this steepening trend line, and how it behaves there will be very interesting. We'll be continuing to watch. Let's go now to Bitcoin ETFs. We mentioned at the beginning of the show that there was a huge milestone in Bitcoin ETFs. So let's talk about that. You can see here that iBit, this is the iShares Bitcoin Trust offered by BlackRock. BlackRock's ETF has now crossed $3 billion in assets under management. And here is the milestone, not just $3 billion. It makes the BlackRock Bitcoin ETF now in the top 10% of all ETFs by assets under management. That means 90% of all ETFs in existence have less than $3 billion under management. This is a wildly impressive statistic. And we have Fidelity's ETF not too far behind at $2.5 billion. So with these two ETFs, we have two flagship products now in Bitcoin that really tell us the investor interest and the institutional potential interest in Bitcoin. We don't think that these two vehicles and the several ETFs that are now offered, of course, XGBTC offered by Grayscale, we don't think that these ETFs are going to have very fleeting assets under management. It means that we think these ETF funds are going to be stickier than funds on a cryptocurrency exchange. Go check out our episode with Alex Thorne. This is part of his, his thesis here. These ETF flows, inflows, are going to be quite sticky. Now, on a net basis, I understand that the total assets under management haven't really changed that much because of the GBTC outflows. And that is definitely something that's an overhang on the price. We can, we can see that in the market with Bitcoin basically stuck in the low 40s ever since the ETF launches. But because we see a different, it's not the exact same user base that's selling GBTC and buying BlackRock. It's a different user base or it's not exactly the same. And because it's not exactly the same, same, we take a lot of encouragement from overall the net inflow and then the gross inflow to these new ETFs. Guys, $7 billion in money into new ETFs. $7 billion. That's almost 1% of Bitcoin's market cap. It is a huge amount. And just because we see GBTC decline in AUM doesn't mean that the ETFs are not at success. This is rotation. This is arbitrage closing. This is tax positions. There's a lot going on with GBTC that we can't just look at the net number and get a ton of signal. I actually am getting a lot of signal out of the gross number of $7 billion into new Bitcoin ETFs. So what are some of the asterisks here? We have outflows from Canada and Europe, okay? Outflows meaning a decline in assets under management at exchange-traded products in Canada and Europe, okay? So there is that as well as outflows in CME, Bitcoin futures, open interest. So closed positions in the futures market in order to focus on positions in the spot market, 
via Bitcoin ETFs. So yes, there are declines in GBTC. So yes, we do have a decline in futures positions. We do even have a decline in Canadian and European assets under management at Bitcoin products. But you still have over $7 billion in new money that has come in to these new vehicles, right? Even though you might have had $6 billion of that come from GPTC, we're not sure how much of that has gone in. So we can actually say that the net inflows into these products show us that there is a good, healthy demand for these new products. And the fact that BlackRock is now in the top 10% of all ETFs by assets under management, it should be pretty alarming to financial advisors that might not have Bitcoin as part of their allocation recommendation to their investors. So we will continue to watch how financial advisors pitch Bitcoin ETFs to their investment committees in order to get those products added to the menu so that they can offer those products to their clients. There are trillions under management that still don't have the green light for these products. That is not a quick moving occurrence. This is something that happens slowly. Quarterly investment policy committee meetings, quarterly updates of the products on the menu. It means that in March and in June, you'll start to see more and more people gain access to these products and it should support assets under management into Fidelity, BlackRock, and the rest of the products. You will see GPDC outflows slow at a certain point. They've already slowed. You'll see them stop at a certain point and then we will really see the effect that this has on price. Thank you guys for sticking with us for this really large global macroeconomic financial markets and Bitcoin update. We hope you will subscribe to our channel. Subscribe to our free research letter at thebitcoinlayer.com slash subscribe. And we'll catch you next time. The Bitcoin Layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL for a special offer of up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free when you go sign up. Now, the reason that we love River is that they are a Bitcoin only exchange. There's no confusion when you go there on what you're buying. But really importantly about River is that they do not use a third party custodian. They have their own multi-signature solution that means that when you buy Bitcoin on River, that Bitcoin is not being stored by another party. River is storing it in their own multi-signature way, and they encourage you to get your Bitcoin into your own self-custody and help with educational resources on that front. Go check them out today, river.com slash TBL.